0: Welcome back to my podcast, Beyond the Water Cooler. Here we are for the fifth series. As usual, we'll be covering all things that shape employee experience, engagement, performance and loyalty. And that's a biggie at a time with budget cuts and the workforce feeling the pinch, including increasing pressure at work. We'll be unpicking how leaders show up and create the right culture for people to thrive one that enables psychological safety, builds team cohesion and nurtures mental well-being. I'm your host, Lisa. As a psychologist and a psychotherapist in my business, It's Time for Change, I get to make a real difference in the world of people. I help deal with those challenges and questions that consume headspace. So whether that's knowing how best to support people, reduce overwhelm or develop better ways of working, I'm your soundboard problem unpicker and guide to doing things differently that ultimately increase employee happiness and outcomes. My mantra is simple, get people right, get business right. So let's dive in. So today I'm joined by Theron Knight and Fit of Migro and this promises to be a very thought provoking conversation about culture and what we really mean and I actually love the fact that we have no title. We haven't really planned what we're going to talk about. We're going to see where the conversation goes. So, welcome, Theron.
1: Thank you. I hope that once you publish it, you do have a title. We'll we'll see what comes out. We'll see what comes <laughs> out. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to to connect with you, to chat with you. I think in many ways our our heart beats in the same direction for human yeah. beings. So, um, yeah, I'm very I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for welcoming me onto your podcast.
0: And and people who might pick up on your accent might pick up on the fact that you're dialing in from Cape Town.
1: Yes, I am. From Cape Town, South Africa.
0: Yeah, and it's only an hour difference. What's your weather like right now?
1: Not too bad. We've had about two and a half weeks of almost incessant rain, because of course we're in winter down here at the moment. And yeah, it's beginning to take its toll, but I, I shouldn't uh, say that to someone in the UK, because our uh, winters are by no means anything compared to your months and months of dark and grey and rain. So let me stop complaining. And- <laughs> Grateful for the for the sun that we have yesterday and today.
0: Yeah, we are having a heat wave here, so we are very happy. There's a lot of ice cream being consumed. Uh, but you're uh you're not an ice cream man, you're a popcorn man.
1: Oh. Uh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and why have I mentioned that, Theran?
1: Oh uh, <laughs> so it's a it, it it this week, four days ago, five days ago, was one of those moments where you are reminded that you are no longer a young man. I cracked a tooth. While I was taking a sick day, you know, trying to do the good executive thing of being a good role model to the team that if I'm sick, let me take a sick day. There I am lying on the couch, watching Netflix, eating popcorn, cracked a tooth. But that's only the start of the story. As it happened, I thought, no, no. Then I foolishly continued chewing on the other side because I wanted to finish the bottle of popcorn. And yes, I cracked the second tooth. So <laughs> I'm currently sitting in this interview with two cracked teeth that hopefully a dentist is going to sort out in a couple of hours. Uh, so it's been you know, it's been an interesting couple of days, and uh, I was saying to people I'm I'm done. Never in my life have I ever felt such a deep sense of surety that I'm never going to eat a certain thing again. I'm done with popcorn. Try like okay. ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ice cream. Ice cream is good.
0: Yeah. So, um, tell. The listeners who may not uh already be aware of you a bit more about you and about micro and about why you're so passionate about kind of being human and what being human is actually really all about
1: yeah so my name is theron it is a i've heard a couple of different stories from my parents as to where it comes from and why but the story i'm sticking with is that it means bold hunter and bright sunshine so that's what I try to be. Um, I am, as as we mentioned earlier, I'm in South Africa. I am the the grandchild on the one side of of uh, British people, and the great 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 grandchild on the other side of Norwegian missionaries to Durban, South Africa. So I, that's where my European roots are. Um, but that. That pioneering spirit is strong in me, uh, which has sort of come out, I guess, in much of my career, but very much in in what we're doing uh, with our business, Migro. Six years ago, uh, old 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 school friend and I, in fact, one of the oldest friends that I have, uh, we started a business called Migro, which is basically emotional intelligence development. That is done chronically over a long period by taking people on a journey using a digital platform, not just to teach them about emotional competencies, but actually to do the work, to do the exercises required to build psychological strength. In some ways, you could think of it as a, a long-term relationship with psychology, um, where we are basically teaching around. You know, in many ways, it's it's psych 101, helping you to understand all the amazing power just of the ideas that that we know of through psychology. But that's the educational, the knowledge side, the part that is really the heavy lifting or the or the thing that changes you. We think of that much more like a gym for emotional competencies, just like you have to go to the gym or hit the road to build physical fitness. You have to do that using the right techniques, the kind of techniques psychologists use with their patients. You have to do that to build emotional competencies as well, as you know all about, as you are a psychologist yourself. Um, and yeah, so we built a, we built a digital platform to essentially try and change and hashtag disrupt the whole field of training and development in the corporate space, specifically in the space of emotional intelligence consulting and development work, because that's usually done in a two or three day workshop or a seminar or something, which we equate a little bit like going on a seminar to become a marathon runner. You can't you can't run a marathon just from going to a seminar, you'll learn really interesting stuff, very, very powerful stuff. Um You know about hydration, maybe about exercise regimen, how to pace yourself, what a what a good training program looks like. But you're not going to be able to run a marathon uh, on the back of that. You actually have to hit the road and and put the hours in. So we've built we've built a product that corporate can use to take their people on a long journey, slowly, daily, um, to to actually do the sit ups, the push ups, (laughs) to Mm -hmm. run the kilometers that are required to build physical emotional competencies, like like the analogy or the metaphor suggests with physical Mm -hmm. strength. So that's that's what Migro is. My role here uh, is is quite varied. The 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 name I've given to my role is the chief humanizing officer, and that's more that's more of a philosophical, um, ideological name, um, which represents the impact I want to have. I'm, I'm trying to humanize everything. I'm trying to humanize humans. I'm trying to humanize capitalism. Humanize the policies that we have in our workplaces trying to humanize relationships i love the the title and actually love to hear more from you around your choice of of words for for your podcast beyond the water cooler Mm. because in so many ways that's what i'm trying to do and that's what we're trying to do with our our business is take relationships beyond water cooler level relationships Mm. Um, anyway operationally i'm involved all over the place I'm, i'm I head up the creative side of what we do, all the film, video, audio, a lot of marketing, um, and then on the executive team as well. So I do a lot of different things involved in all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I think I think what the, what I would love to contribute to this company and to the world is just a vision for what it means to be human mm. and working of some of the thinking around, around corporate structures, corporate strategy um how do we and, and and as a result of that culture is obviously a very important area for me so we have a lot of talking this is supposed to be a conversation that's a long answer to your question yeah.
0: um, <laughs> but you know what I think you've explained brilliantly why um why it is that I've invited you to join me today because it's you know my strap line is about getting people right to get business right and it's all about the people and it's all about um you know someone asked me on my podcast recently uh, about my why and I just said because I want people's lives to be meaningful uh, yeah. and that was kind of in the broader sense and it sounds a bit lame when you say it like that you know there's no kind of frills around it. it's not all it's kind of like whizzy I've rehearsed this you know kind of spiel about selling myself and the rest of it it's just like it's just about enabling people to live in a way that feels good for them and is meaningful and purposeful and makes them happy. And, you know, I talk about, people say, what do you do in workplace? It's like, well, I just help them become places where people are happy and like yeah. to be part of. And it's, and it's all, it's all a bit like, Oh, is that, is that it? <laughs> it's not very, it's, it's not all kind of whizzy and glossy, yeah. but actually being human, if we can get that bit right, everything else just
1: flows. And And, and for me, it's interesting because it's, it seems, you know, the whole idea of meaning and purpose and why. It's stuff I deeply believe in. And yet it, it it feels so surface level and in vogue that there's no depth to it. And so I've got a mixed, I've got a mixed response to it. On one hand, I want to shake people and say, and say, we're not getting it right. Stop using such, you know, such um shallow ideas in the world of work about how to be human. On the other hand, I'm glad that people are actually talking about how to be human. Um, and it's it's interesting as we as I'm sure for you but for myself as well as we navigate how to to seriously engage in a conversation that has become I think very popular very trendy but still quite shallow still quite water coolerish you know that's the level of conversation um, and the work that has to be done psychologically relationally it's just so deep it's so big so important so part of me the pioneer in me the entrepreneur in me wants to kick against the against you know the flatness of the conversation but at the same time I realized that 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 is that is what what enables us to have the conversation that it is trendy enough you know.
0: So it'd be really interesting then to start off with asking you what you think the term culture is actually about like what is culture because that yeah. is a term when I mean, we think about people having this conversation now a lot of people talk about culture it's a bit like yeah rewind three years everyone's talking about well-being and then it was like I'm really fed up with well-being and I, and I worry that this is going to happen with cultures like yeah we're, we're over that and now we're on to the next thing so what does for you what does culture mean what do we what does that mean what is it
1: the the definition of culture that I like the most comes not from the world of business I I don't come from business I didn't I, I came from first of all the arts I was a clothing designer, then a musician, then a pastor, actually, then I became an academic, then from there into the academy and film, then from there only into business. And in my academic um, pursuits, long before being an entrepreneur, my input has all been through the humanities or through the arts. Then you come into this corporate world, this business world, and culture is thrown around by everyone. And yet the way people think of it it doesn't resonate with how I've developed my understanding around what culture is, if I think in terms of societies, in terms of ethnic cultures, in terms of humanities or anthropology and that kind of influence I've had. So my my best definition of culture that I like doesn't come from the business world or the business consultants, the you know, the Marvin Bowers and the the Peter Druckers and the you mm. know the people who're supposed to understand business. It comes from Clark. I forget his first name, but he was a he was a post-war uh, sociologist there in England. Um, him and a bunch of other anthropologists were trying to understand youth culture, post-war youth culture. And they wrote some book and a few papers and things. I haven't read much of it, but I've come across this line that that him and his colleagues mentioned in the the one book. He says that culture is an historical reservoir, which I think is the best summary of what culture is. is. It is the story that has gone before, that is now culminating in this Dam in this lake, in this reservoir. It's everything that's gone before. It is the way your your colleagues have talked to each other before. It's the way the boss has treated the staff. It's the way the policies have been decided and communicated. It's everything. It's 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 both the good and the bad. It all comes into one historical narrative um, that that has that that has come to now. And I much prefer that definition because it speaks to story it doesn't speak to you know practice well it is practice but it's practice as the result of story and it's it doesn't it doesn't speak to what the organizational psychologist you know culture consultant is bringing very much this view of culture as a tool for for capitalism I, I can see that it is a tool but but that sort of flies in the face of my heart for culture is the it's the collection of our our experience that has led us to here. Um, another phrasing I really like is my, my amended phrasing of um, Marvin Bauer's uh, very famous line, which many don't know is attributed to him, but that line, that culture is the way we do things around here. Mm. I don't think it's the way we do things. I think it's it's the contextual result of the way we do things around here, which which is the reservoir. It is that historical narrative. That has become a reservoir and a context so everything we've done is the story and all those things are deposits into this into this reservoir of who we are um which ultimately lives it lives in and around the artifacts of what we do around here but those things are just a framework on which the life of a culture or the toxicity of a culture develops mm. uh, so does that answer your question? That, that's how I think and about and it. I'm
0: just thinking about, you know, when you talk about stories, I think it's really lovely when you can get people to start to reflect on their culture by just telling their story and sharing their story of what they experienced and how they got to be and do where they're at in that point in time
1: Yeah,
0: and tell their story of their experience in that company over the last it could be six months it could be the year how, the, the length that they worked there and actually just to hear the different stories yeah. from people working in the same organization
1: just you mean stories of their experience in the yeah. organization
0: yeah, yeah. And, it, and it just shows when people do that and they and people hear each other's stories and it's like wow that story is so different to my story because mm-hmm. I'm maybe part of a different team so I have different relationships or yeah. you know that we we all have even if we're part of the same team we have different stories because where we set our context is very slightly different to the next person's because we all have, you know, we're all so unique and we have our own perspectives. And, and, and we're bringing we our own a... narrative as the yeah.
1: prequel yeah. to this book experience already, yeah. yeah.
0: And actually that's one of the things when, um, you know, in terms of our previous narrative, when I was talking about my why and talking about, you know, helping people experiencing meaning in their life and engage in a meaningful life, whatever that means for them, it was also about empowering people to, find more meaning if they haven't had the opportunity you know, their experience hasn't already given the opportunity to see what else is out there that other potential and I've had my background is not business so I've come from working in all sorts of really really interesting environments where you have people who are uh some roles people are very privileged and very empowered and uh very driven then you have other um organizations and communities I've worked with who are very uh in a way limited by their very small experience because they haven't had the opportunities yeah. that others have had. And when you offer them the opportunity to say, here's someone else's story about what it, what their experience is like if they have the courage to step outside that door or they just go and open, uh, you know, go down that path over there. And it's like, wow. Yeah. And it suddenly gets exciting and you, you can open up different possibilities for people from their, their model of what they think is a, their reality.
1: Yeah. We, we, have had the practice here at my internally. It's not quite the same as what you're, you're sharing about, you know, sharing your company, your story of being in the company or in the business. We, we run uh, operationally, we run uh, scrum, we run sprints here. So we have these like big chunks of, you know, weeks of time where we're running hard at something um, head down running. And then we have sort of head up moments where at the end of the moment, we're doing at the end of every quarter, we take a week between, one quarter and the next quarter. And that's like a head up moment. And, and in those moments, we do a bunch of different things in the team. And one of them is something called a story lunch, where one person in the team shares their life story, whatever they want to share as deep as vulnerable as shallow, and only if they want to, we ask them. And if they say no, I don't want to share that's totally fine. It's not a, it's not a compulsory thing. We don't kick them down the roster until they're ready. (laughs) You know, we'll ask them again if they want to, but but it is, it's a purely opt in kind of scenario where people share their story some people go back three generations and they share they share the story that led to their parents getting married and to them and every single time the story becomes it again it's another deposit into that historical reservoir that narrative reservoir which changes the way you work with them afterwards you realize you know it's not personality it's not psychometric profiling but still you hear the story and it changes the way you you Engage with them. It might change the way you you carve out tasks. Who's going to do what? We just found out this person used to be a whatever. Let's see how they can contribute. And, and so that flourishing of different perspectives that you mentioned. Um, it's almost a, you know, what some people call the Medici effect from the Medici family back in, in uh Florence, I think it was during the Renaissance, where there was this cross-pollination of so many ideas and, and disciplines that resulted in a whole bunch of instruments being invent and all sorts of massively uh, innovative things happening in society we see that after every time someone shares their story because you, you start seeing more of them then you then you had the story you had of them was too small then when they shared their story your story of them got bigger and then all of a sudden they're contributing here and there and it makes the team more varied so it's a bit of a different take on, on what you're sharing but but I can completely understand the benefits that that you mentioned from that.
0: And I think as we have, I've, I've done that sort of stuff with them. Um, and I've been working with teams who are either quite newly formed teams. They haven't really got those relationships yet, or they are um, or particularly where they're hybrids working teams. And they and I remember working with one particular team where they said, oh, we want some psychometrics. And I was like, why do you want psychometrics? Like, I don't know, <laughs> but I'm sure we, I'm sure we get some value yeah. from doing some psychometrics. That's what everyone's doing. Everyone's talking yeah. about. Yeah. And we went back to basics of so just saying, forget the psychometrics just get to know each other as humans yeah, and just hear yeah. each other's stories. And it was so powerful. It's so like just that building those relationships, that trust, that um yeah, just insights into understanding why someone is the way they are. It's it's we can't get more value than that.
1: And and I mean another really powerful angle on it is that you start, you know, depending on how psychologically safe people are feeling in the context when they're sharing about who they are, when they're making themselves you know vulnerable they give you an insight into their psychological narrative that comes as a result of the actual lived narrative of their life and it enables you to actually um, interact with them going forward in a way that can help them to see what they haven't seen in their own story or you know to add more value than they than they thought they had to add because you can see something that they can't see it's the you know, it's the Jihari window it's mm. it's it's what they know about themselves, what they don't know, what we can see, how we can interact. Um, and it's always fascinating to go into the Q&A section afterwards, you know, when someone shares their story, and we try and if they're open to it, you know, Q&A, what did you mean when you said this? Or, um, And it's not supposed to be this group therapy dynamic. It's not the point of it. The point is to get to know each other. But it, but when you share your story, the story changes, I think, mm-hmm. and and who you share it with is who you're inviting into, not just the future story, but into the story of the past, um, which then, of course, reworks it and changes the story of now and the story of the future.
0: And I like the Q&A bit because um, I think too often when people talk, people want to solve problems yeah. or they'll jump on this uh, comparison like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Here's my experience. that sounds just like that. And there's the people often have this tendency to want to just talk and share about themselves when they hear someone else's uh, story. And when yeah. you ban that and you say, you're only allowed to ask questions so you can better understand that person's story and their, their take on whatever it is life. And you can't say, yeah, I relate to that because this is my experience. So like, I don't want to know about your experience. And you can't yeah. try and solve something and say, well, did you ever think about that? Or have you tried? It's like, No just ask questions because we don't ask enough questions of each other to really understand what's driving people.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. I'm going to remember that. We um we haven't done a story lunch in a while, but I think I'm going to add that in as a, it usually is just questions. We don't have people soapboxing, you know, mm. but that might be a really nice angle to add in that. No, this is only question time. It's not, it's not give your perspective on, on what they shared mm. time
0: way so when mm-hmm. you were talking about reservoirs, I was um, curious to know how you were going to describe culture because you've also, um, you have a whole bank of videos that you have produced talking about all sorts of big questions, which I like. And in one of those, you talked about a trellis and plants growing up a trellis, which I thought was yeah. a really lovely way of looking at it. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah. I think part of the... Part of the disconnect I've seen, which I've alluded to earlier, the disconnect that I see in the way corporate speaks about culture is that they are not actually understanding it. They're not understanding the organic nature. The word culture is it's the same root as cultivate, cultivare, I think is where it comes from a Latin word, uh, which which actually at its root means to make the ground ready for planting. <laughs> that that's that's really what it is. It's tilling the soil. It is preparing for growth so when we talk about culture as just the artifacts that we have or just the the behaviors that we want people to do i think we're not i think we're, we're we're trying to control too much what growth is and what life is and the organic nature of culture i think the role of culture building in an organization the role of leadership in culture not to build culture you never build culture i think you build something around which life can can build can can grow should i say which is why i like this idea of a trellis uh, the leader is not responsible for the vine the leader is in some ways responsible for the shape of the vine but only by putting things in place that life can grow around so the artifacts that we we try and put in place need to be a trellis around which life can grow for instance at my we have a lot of artifacts and and they're very important artifacts for us the one thing we do is we eat together every day but we don't have a culture of eating together that's just the trellis we have a culture of friendship of vulnerability of knowing each other why was that possible why can we have that kind of culture because we eat together Um, so we put something in place around which we hope life will grow and it does it always does culture is the it's the result it's the reaction it's the compelling response to the environment i think if we look at it from a from a more humanities angle Nobody's dictating ethnically. Nobody's dictating what your culture needs to be. No, it is it is what the consensus agrees is a compelling thing to do. Mm. And then it does take on a life of its own. And if this is what we've always eaten, well, then this is what we'll eat. If this is how we treat our elders, well, this is what we'll do. We, we get pulled into that current. But there's no one dictating how that works. Um, it is the natural response. It's what we make of the environment. This is another thing I like to mention quite often is around the world, cultures are always a response, a rooted response to the land, to the to the space you're in when you're in the Mediterranean well olive oil olives it's going to be deeply rooted in your culture why because it's rooted in the land Uh, when you're in whatever uh, a fishing village well food is going to be very much seafood you know it's (laughs) not going to be the same when you're up in the Alps you're not eating that same kind of food so it's a response to the land and yet in the corporate space we like to think of it as every culture you know, as if we have these artificial things, we're looking for a, a, a command and control. We're not looking for a command and control culture. We we want to have a, a flat structure, a culture of accountability. So we try and create that culture. Mm-hmm. The only way I think we actually create a certain culture is by letting it be the compelling response to the trellis we've built. So why do we eat together? We eat together because we recognize the power. I mean, it's even there in the word companion which means with bread. That's what the word companion means. Com is, uh, the prefix means with, and then companion, panini, panay, bread. So so a companion is when you eat with. If we want to have a company of companions, we, we don't mandate that. You don't create a policy for that you create something around which that can develop, which is a trailer. So, so we have a lot of different artifacts. We've shaped our offices the way we, we have. We've built a big kitchen so that it's easy for the whole company to eat together at the same time instead of shifts because there's not enough space to heat up your food or not enough microwaves or whatever. So, so you put things in place. And I do think this is the leader's role. This is this is a cultural work a leader does is, is to create those artifacts, that structure, but then you you don't mandate you can't control the life that grows and yet at the same time it will follow the trellis it will grow where where it's been given structure to grow
0: i like that i really like that and i think it also reminds me of um you know the importance of that around we spend so much time at work yeah and we you know our experience at work and our ability to connect and experience companionship and feel good about ourselves and each other. It's, you know, that's much more than just the benefit to the company in terms of the products and services we're developing. You know, I'm a human, so I'm a mum going to work and I'm a wife and I'm a friend and I'm a daughter. And actually when I leave that workspace, how am I with all of of those people in my greater network, my greater community And how am I then shaping them? And it's the next generation. I know that's also something, you know, you you connect with quite a lot in terms of it's not just you in that workspace for those eight hours a day or whatever it is. It's about my responsibility as a leader to give you the best experience, knowing that it has a ripple effect to much wider community, including the next generation of adults
1: yeah 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 you're you're uh, reminding me of that um maybe you saw that video I posted recently about um, the study done in the states at uh, University of Massachusetts there was a there is a professor uh, Maureen Perry Jenkins who's just finished a longitudinal study around the impact of the workplace environment on well first on those employees those workers but then through them on the development of their children so she's done this ten year longitudinal study where she's she looked at three hundred and seventy working class families. I think in a sort of industrial. I can't quite remember the detail, but a blue collar kind of industry. And and the people, the families that she looked at were families that that at the beginning of the study had the wife or the mother was was pregnant. They were expecting. Um, I'm not sure, first child, second child, I'm not sure, any child. And and then she looked at the the difference in workplace environment, specifically around ideas like um, are they able to be self-led are they micromanaged are they do they feel empowered do they have a sense of value meaning in, in what they're doing um or yeah or is it is it sort of very structured and they don't have control they're not um, they don't have agency and then and then over 10 years she looked at the you know what what that spread of experience looks like and then as the children that were you know in utero at the beginning of the study as they were born and as they developed by the time they got to grade one, her basic, her basic finding was that people who felt that they could take responsibility and had freedom at work, their children at the age of whatever in the States is grade one, uh, by the time they got to grade one, they they surpassed the, their peers who were in a less empowering and humanizing work environment. They surpassed them in reading skills, in math skills, in social um, skills essentially all the markers of, of success at the age of whatever, mm-hmm. five, six, seven, whatever it is in grade one. And, and her, the discussion that comes from that is that when you come home at the end of the day, feeling empowered, feeling like you've been you've been doing meaningful work, feeling like you're in a culture that values you as a human being, you actually have a lot more to give your infant, your young child. You have a lot more to invest in them. Then, when you come home feeling deflated, you come home feeling dehumanized, uh, disregarded, undervalued. Actually, you, you maybe you don't take that out on your kids. Maybe you're not you know, turned into an abusive parent. I don't think it's binary like that. But but you invest less in your children. So for me, what what I mean, it, even as I say it now, it like gives me like the shivers. You know, the the responsibility that we have for those we lead in our organizations. It's not just their life; it's their children, and it actually—it's it, it, not just their children; it's the children's children. Mm-hmm. You are having an impact in the world of human beings, mm-hmm. well beyond just Susie or Peter mm-hmm. who has to run this machine. Um, and and I'm passionate about that. That I mean, I—I I, I realize sometimes when I when I talk about capitalism, I can sound like someone who doesn't believe in capitalism. <laughs> you mm-hmm. think it's just evil. I, I don't. I, I can see and recognize that. The benefits of it—it's, you know, the impact that capitalism has had, okay, sure, on the environment has been pretty bad. But but on the on the world of of poverty, nothing else has lifted humans out of poverty the way capitalism has. And of course, I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm you know I'm in the for-profit world, so I don't disagree with it. But there but there are some dynamics when you add in human greed and things. There's some dynamics that I think turn human beings into resources. And then as a result of that, this is my big frustration with a culture conversation. As a result of that, culture becomes a means to an end in the corporate space. It's just a way of extracting value. So so we all know the studies, we all know the research that says, you know, happy, healthy cultures give you whatever, 20% productivity boost and more efficiency and lower turnover. And that's all good for the bottom line. Yeah, sure. Great. That's awesome. But I'm concerned about the children. I'm concerned about... Just a lived experience of what it means to be a human being who enjoys their work, and and I'm on a mission to to change the means means to an end conversation. Culture is not a means to an end; it does have other ends beyond itself, but it is an end in and right. of itself. And, and and we we have to we have to make that shift in the world of business to stop using it as the horse to pull the cart to productivity. No, culture is. Culture is what, what makes human life meaningful. Um, yeah, it's not a way to extract. It is a way to extract value, unfortunately. And so we use it for that. Mm. So it's a hard shift to make because it's not as if it's either all People who enjoy life and are enjoying their work, they do contribute more. But I'd love to figure out how do we, how do we just turn that off in the leader's brain um, so that culture is its own reward. It's its own end result. Uh, and I, that I, that's I, a calling for them.
0: Yeah, I, um, I hear your passion for that. And, you know, having not come from a business background, my one of my roles pre-setting up It's Time for Change was working with uh, disadvantaged communities around yes, breaking the cycles of poverty, but also raise, changing aspirations, like developing aspirations, trying to break that generational habits and expectations and behaviours, which just maintained what always happened and you could predict how the child that was not yet born what their life experience is going to be like based on all the generations that have come before them yeah, and actually being able to be part of a project where we could say you know introduce new opportunities and experiences and just open up new possibilities and start to just create these subtle shifts has such a huge impact not only for those families directly but also just in terms of their environment their community their economy their, you know everything; it just changed identity of, um, you know, and, and their self, their self perception, and how they just how they see themselves. That sense of this is who I am. This is this is my place in the world, and it gave them yeah. a sense of status, which was you can't beat that.
1: Yeah, and and you can't. Not only can you not beat it, you you can't actually you can't turn that into data. Mm. You can extract some of it as data, but but it's so it goes so far beyond you know the impact of that goes so far beyond what is easily seeable Um, which is like deeply profoundly significant to be to be able to be involved in it Um, but that's
0: a tricky one isn't it because because there's and this i remember having this debate while i was doing that role about the lack of data you know you can't it's not all about spreadsheets and so many organizations are so hung up on i'm not going to engage in this unless I can see there's going to make X percent difference to this particular outcome. And you're like, you can't quantify some of this stuff. And it's about trying to get people in in, engaged in it for the right reasons, rather than, you know, as you were saying, the bottom line.
1: Yeah. And, and part of my frustration with, with the data conversation is we've idolized data, but data isn't knowledge. So, so it's like your, your, you know, what you mentioned earlier about people wanting to do, we want to do some psychometrics. Why? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's good to have the data. You know, everyone else is doing it. Yeah. What we see time and time again, especially with our clients, is people don't mind spending money to get the data, but they don't understand the data. They don't construct a, a narrative, a meaningful narrative from the data because they don't know how to. Um, I'm not saying there is no narrative that we can pull from the data. We can, but most people... Uh, they're so they they fall into the trap of of being allured by the what do I call it? It's not a lie. It's but uh, they have a false confidence that having the data is meaningful. Then mm. so they don't do anything with the data because actually we have to turn it back into a story. We have to turn the data back into a story. And if we just go look at the story in the first place, <laughs> we'll we will get the data we need to help us continue in the story. I mean, this is the way story works. Things don't come out of the blue in a story. Um, or if they do, they they always serve the story. I was I was watching something recently on Netflix. I won't say what it is because I don't want to bad mouth yeah. the series. But in about 10 minutes before the final scene of the last episode in a six episode thing, they threw something into the story that made absolutely no sense. They gave about three minutes to it. And I was so frustrated by it because I'm a storyteller, I understand how story works, and it didn't, it definitely didn't serve the story, but it wasn't done in such a way that would serve a sequel. So maybe they're trying to put something in there for the sequel, but it it doesn't, it it can't serve the sequel because they haven't done it properly. It's so out of character with the character that they were trying. And and instead of being profoundly impacted by the story, I was just irritated. So why am I saying this? I'm saying this because the the, the story. The story we have and the story going forward, it has it has to make sense. Mm-hmm. It has to. And, and if we just look at the story, we can understand it. But but to pull data that we don't understand and think that that's going to impact the future story, well, it's not. It's it's just mm-hmm. going to sit in the bottom drawer of the HR professional who doesn't know what to do with all that money they spent on the psychometrics.
0: Yeah. And I, uh, it'll be interesting to come on to HR because one of the things I wanted to um, ask you about was what do you think... Of, some of the biggest challenges to companies having well you know people talk about good culture and i know you're not a fan necessarily of is it a good culture or is it a bad culture
1: you talk more no, about i am it, actually i am a fan
0: of that. are you okay because i know you like talking about is it a helpful culture
1: as well well i i think so this is where i realize that i'm a i'm a little bit i think i'm out on the outskirts a little bit i'm on the periphery of the conversation with a controversial perspective on it. But but I do think it's a conversation of good or bad. Whereas I would think in the, in the well, in the corporate culture space, but even in the ethnic culture space, it's a bit taboo to talk about something as good or bad. Cause that's, that, then you're talking about a moral category mm. and people don't wanna, you know, we're in a non, non-judgmental age. That's the, that's the only thing we're willing to judge is someone else's judgmentalism. Mm-hmm. So, so I do realise that it's perhaps not politically correct to talk about good or bad cultures, but let me give the give the the measuring stick for what for what I think is good or bad. Um, I think it is whether it humanises or dehumanises, and and because the human person for me is so important, that becomes the moral the moral uh, point to have the conversation. Is the culture one that is helping us to be healthier humans or not healthier humans? if it's helping us to be healthier then it is actually a good culture in the moral sense of the term um if it's if it is if it is degrading us if it is meaning we can't be present with our children the way we we could be that is bad that's a bad culture that culture may in fact that bad culture may in fact be helpful on the on the organizational you know uh whatever what they what they're trying to accomplish i think even a helpful culture like for instance, I mean look at the look at the, the startup world, um, especially the tech startup world. This is you know, cultures of overwork, exhaustion, and and not and, and why are they overworking? Not because that's what we do around here, because that's you know, people's self-perception and, and worth and value is so heavily connected to that. So I feel like an imposter, I have to put in extra work. Or um, the only way I'm gonna, you know, crack it is this. As a as a tech entrepreneur, is if I work eighteen hour days, six six seven days a week, that might be helpful to to actually get the funding required to scale the business. It's a bad culture. Mm. Um, so yeah, I know most people don't want to take the culture conversation to the moral category. I'm not scared to take it there. Um, possibly because I'm not I'm not we're not dealing on religious terms here. We're dealing on you know my perspective that the human being is is super important.
0: And I think it's really good challenge that practice isn't it like around startups or yesterday I was having a conversation with someone who is starting a new role in a new organization and I said so what is your intention of how you're going to show up um because you know we have it's very easy to fall into that trap of I need to impress them I need to prove that I am worthy of having this job so I'm going to work all hours and I'm going to do x y and z giving way too much just to prove that I am worthy of being here But then I asked, well, that's great. But actually, how do you then step back from that? How do you then go, well, actually, that's only for the first three months and I'm going to be really me. (laughs) I'm going to pass my probation
1: period. (laughs) So
0: it's like, you know, be very conscious. So what do you see as being the big challenges then to a company getting their culture right?
1: I think the big challenges are drinking the Kool-Aid of capitalism. And I don't want to be... Too flippant here. I don't want to reduce the conversation down in an unhelpful way. I, there are pressures in the market. There are, you know, one industry is different to the next, and 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 business has to make a profit. I get that. So I have to I have to always temper what I want to say around this because, you know, depending on the, the margins in your industry or another industry, it actually does impact. The practices that you can implement um you know flexi time or remote work it's all very good and well for people to get on their high horse about that it doesn't work in every industry so so you know how, how do you yeah how do, how do you speak to the challenges and the dynamics in your own context how do you take the meat and spit out the bones of the kinds of idealistic statements that i make but but i think drinking the kool-aid around phrases like, uh, you know, it's it's not personal, it's business. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's nonsense. I think that's bad. I think that's in the morally bad category. Um, what else is there? Uh, treating, treating people only as resources. I understand they're on the expense line. You know, salaries are on the expense line, I get that. But but institutions, there, there is an institutional dynamic that makes certain behaviour okay, and the institutions of capitalism have their own culture. You know, on the macro scale, and they pull us along. It's a, it's okay to just completely, you know, uh, let go thousands of families, let go thousands of breadwinners, and, and impact thousands of families just for the sake of the shareholders, because now I have a mandate to, to mm. bring profits. The, like, there's something, something wrong with that. But the culture of capitalism makes it seem acceptable. It's not acceptable. I'm not saying it mustn't retrench. I'm not saying, yeah, I don't want to be, as I say, too binary about it. But, but the institutions shape us. There, there was um, Winston Churchill at the end of the Second World War, during the war that uh, houses of parliament were bombed. Much nice. Sure I, I feel a bit self-conscious telling this to a Brit. Um, but the houses of parliament were bombed. They had to be rebuilt after the war, and and. As you know, they're very close. Currently, you know the current building is very close. Uh, not enough seats for all the parliamentarians. Uh, everyone's shouting at each other, and it was like that before the war. And when they had to rebuild them, there was debate as to how should we build these. And a lot of people were saying, let's let's build a more modern amphitheater type um, building. Uh, let's build enough seats for all the the parliamentarians. And Churchill came up with this very famous phrase, which is often repeated. I say it a lot. Um, that first we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. And and, and what he meant was, we have a two-party government system and we need, to build, we need to build the building in such a way that we are intimate and look each other in the eye and can hold each other accountable because that's what the public deserves. So don't you come with your other idea of some amphitheater with enough seats. No, don't build enough seats because we have to be sitting on top of each other because we need that rawness. And you can see it, you can see it in the way your parliamentarians speak to each other. Before right or wrong, the point that Churchill was bringing was we have to build things, trellises, to go back to our previous conversation, that are going to shape a culture in a certain way. And because of that, that behaviour is seen as acceptable in the context of your parliament.
0: I think I think your analogy of, like, well, think about the buildings is a, an interesting one because I was reading an article in um, the Harvard Business Review about ambiguity. And as you you know, I was thinking about when companies expand, particularly when they're um expanding abroad into different cultures. And i know some uh, people at the moment who are struggling because they are working in the UK and they've been taken over by uh, leadership in other countries where they have very different expectations. And they were talking about um, you know, when you are in one when you share a space, you so much of the communication, so much of what you get from that experience is not through the spoken word or the written word; it's just from what you feel, what you, yeah. you know, what you observe, what you're experiencing. And um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read to you actually um, a quote, uh, which because they're talking about that messages implicitly being passed are kind of frequently the norm. And they're talking about the closer the space we share and the more similar our cultural backgrounds, the stronger our reliance on unspoken cues. And I think that's one of the things that's getting in the way for people with hybrid working. And they gave an example of uh, Louis Vuitton, who they said, um, employees are not just comfortable with ambiguity, they embrace it, because they believe it's central to the company's success. And one manager said that the more we wipe out ambiguity between what was meant and what was heard, the further we wander from that essential mysterious ingredient in our corporate culture that's led to our success. And I think it's a really interesting quote, because so many people talk about, you know, as we expand this culture that we have built in order to... You know, they talk about we build this thing, and obviously, as you've said, you don't build this culture. But they have said, right? We've got this culture. We're actually, we're happy with this culture. We're expanding. We want to maintain it. So therefore, we need to get everything written down. We need to have 101 policies to make sure that wherever you're based, you will experience the same culture. And I love that this um this article I read was actually really highlighting the importance of space and ambiguity and kind of sowing the seed for ideas and just seeing where they go and and not getting every single detail in black and white so that everyone becomes like a robot following a certain way of practice, but giving people space to be creative.
1: Yeah. That it it it, it resonates a lot with some of the language we use, mm. but we don't we don't have many policies. Because policies are an attempt at expedience and cheapness and uniformity. We prefer postures from which different stances can be taken or different um Um, actions can come and we prefer principles so we go with with practices postures and principles instead of policies policies are cheap principles are expensive because every single time a conversation is needed ambiguity is expensive yes like ambiguity is expensive so because of that in the context the macro context of you know Profitable capitalism, expensive is bad. <laughs> you know, you have to figure out how do we how do we do this efficiently? How do we get a culture that's uniform efficiently? Well, policies. Mm. Policies are useless. Policies are useless, I think. They are so dehumanizing. We have we have a couple of policies, but otherwise, mostly we have conversations. And I know that we have the luxury of being still fairly small. You know, we have less than 20 people in the company, but so much time goes into conversation. Because every context has a different set of variables, so, so yes, we have a paternity, sorry, a um, parental leave, so paternity and maternity mm-hmm. policy. But even into that is built so much conversation. Do you want to pull this trigger or this trigger in the policy? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are the parameters. Let's play. Um, we have we we have something which I actually posted about today on LinkedIn, which I call which we call s-h-i-t days i won't say it out loud for the i don't want to put that little e on your episode Um, but it stands for sometimes help is time and it's a it's a policy but it's it's more than a policy it's a it's a practice we have which says anyone in the organization can give a day to anyone else which isn't reliant on a certain number of days. Everybody has three days. Policy says three days to give to this. No, it is It is when you see a, a fellow colleague who's going through something and time away from their work responsibilities will be really helpful. Then you say to them, I'm giving you a SHIT day, go home. Maybe they, you know, they just found out their parents is got cancer or whatever it is, their wife's literally just had a miscarriage and only two people in the office know about it. Uh, whatever the story is, time is what's helpful there. So yes, there's a policy, but it's a policy that, that has uh, parameters built in that says, okay, to pull the trigger on this policy, these are the things that have to happen. A, you can't take one, you can only receive one. B, you have to be willing to be vulnerable enough with someone that they actually know that you need some time. See, you have to be willing for that person to share that with the executive. And so, so there's vulnerability baked in. But if if the person who awards it to someone just gives it you know, willy-nilly without realizing the spirit of it, they then tell the executive, listen, I've given this day to that person. And this is the reason why. If the executive says, no, you're, you're taking the mick, uh, that's you're abusing it. They need to be prepared to sacrifice one of their annual leave days to be okay. able to give it. So everyone's got skin in the game. The organization is willing to give the time if there's enough relationship for to, for the need to come out, if there's enough vulnerability for that need to be shared. And if you're going to take advantage of it, then you need to be prepared that it's going to cost you a leave day. So I, if I'm going to give one of these days to someone, I have to be... I have to know that I care about this person enough that even if the executive tells me it's cost me a leave there, I don't care. I'm giving that person a leave there, my annual leave. For the record, we've never actually taken anyone's annual leave away. But it's it's a policy, but it's a policy that has a couple of stakes in the ground to make sure it's not taken advantage of. And then the whole thing resolves revolves around conversation. It's impossible to happen. Without that is,
0: it's a great example of how people can rethink policy. And as we come to a close there, and I would love to know, are there any other sort of I guess, pr- really practical takeaways yeah. that people can take from listening to this to maybe change the way they do things. I'm going to leave it really broad.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, a few. I do tend to be quite abstract. So this is where it takes <laughs> time. we have a lot of practical things we're trying to do. So some of the stories we've shared are, are our attempts to be practical. But I guess my my challenge to leaders, to, to people leaders, is... When last did you do something? In fact, yeah, maybe this, maybe this, this is the challenge. When last did you do something with colleagues that had absolutely nothing to do with work? And that doesn't mean outside of work. You can do it inside work, but but try to build in more of that because that's where the relationship will build. That's where you will you will build health between you. Um, we, we built it into some of our artifacts like at lunchtime we, we sometimes we have a working lunch we can't find time so let's discuss this over lunch but otherwise lunch is about playing bananagrams or you know chess people play chess at lunch we're all sitting around the same table when last did you do this can you do it and maybe it does mean going out with the team one evening um after work if that's if if that's if the culture as it is only allows for that mm. But can you do it internally as well try and relate to each other completely out of work dynamics or deliverables. Um, I think that's the best way to start seeing the humans um, as humans and to actually humanize them. So that's the one thing. Um, Employee recognition. I think we have to broaden that conversation. Employee recognition is not about recognizing performance. It's about recognizing humans. So for instance, this policy I mentioned of how how we give people time. That's re- that's employee recognition. We are recognizing what you're going through right now. So that's another challenge. Rethink what employee recognition is. It's human recognition. It's not performance. It's not achievement recognition. If we can do that, we can humanize our contexts. Um, I'd love to ask you, actually, what do you think people can practically do as as a result of some of these conversations? We, well, this conversation we've been having. For me, it's
0: it's always about going back to doing less to do more to achieve more. So stripping back the the need to find another initiative, another solution, yeah. another way of doing things and actually just say we just need to create space. it's about space. it's about I need some space just to gather my thoughts and yeah. just work out where I'm at right now and to find out where other people are at right now and just to connect with where yeah. people are feeling at right now. And yeah. that would generate lots and lots of data. If we want to take it back to the data conversation around where we need to be heading next. Yeah. yeah. I liked your chess example. I did wonder whether you said start with, because your accent chase, and I had this lovely vision of you and your colleagues playing chase around the office.
1: <laughs> Either way. We've done that too, we've
0: done it, <laughs> <laughs> um, Jared, I would. I would love to finish by asking you a question that, Plassie, who was on my podcast a while ago, who was talking about mental health at work, uh, who's awesome, uh, asked asked this question. And I thought this is a brilliant one to ask you. So she said, what would be the one piece of advice that you'll give to someone to motivate them if they are struggling to find their purpose?
1: One piece of advice to give to someone if they're struggling to find their purpose. I would say, at its root, I think purpose is always rooted in the human, in the human relationships. The thing humans care most about is humans. If they're struggling to find their purpose, they need to work on their relationships. What can you do to build strength in your relationships at home and at work? I think if you can do that, you will begin to find some broad strokes, maybe, of what of, of where a purpose may lie for you. Um, and 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 I'm gonna come back to your actual practical um, suggestion that you just mentioned. Carve out space, carve out time. Yeah. Mm. One of the things that impacts our decision making. Uh, the most our, our emotional ability to to make healthy decisions is overwhelmed. if we can reduce the cognitive overwhelm it helps us to to hear and perhaps if I can combine what I said with with what I'm now stealing from you carve out time for relationships
0: Time makes us more human doesn't it
1: yeah mm.
0: there and yeah. I have loved this conversation I keep kind talking to you because this There are there are so many things we could talk about, but time is up. You need to go to the dentist. I do. I do (laughs)
1: indeed.
0: (laughs) We're going to put your contact details in the show notes um, and any resources that you think might be useful to steer people towards. But I wanted to thank you hugely for joining me today to just unpick some of some of these big concepts and actually just explore maybe a slightly different way of people thinking about them. Um, So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's been a an absolute joy and pleasure to chat with you um as i'm looking at you i'm seeing your your is it your brand is it your tagline on the the back of these time it's for time change. change yeah it it most certainly is time for change and to be able to engage in conversation with people like yourself i i think that's one of the important things that will drive change so thank you for your podcast thank you for everything you're doing um And yeah, as I say, it's an absolute pleasure talking to anyone who sings from the same song sheet as I do. Um, So it's been a lovely time with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining
0: me on the Beyond the Water Cooler podcast. What's the one thing you will take away from this conversation to think about or do differently? I'd love you to join the club to stay in the loop and be the first to hear about exciting things I'm developing, including free downloadable resources. The link to sign up is in the show notes. I hope this episode has got you thinking about how you can make a real difference to the people you work with and how well you and those around you are engaging and thriving. Let's continue the conversation about the points raised in this episode. Or perhaps you have other questions about employee experience and performance. Email me at it's time for change, connect with me on LinkedIn, or why not pick up the phone? I love to walk and talk. My details are in the notes. Before next time, please give me a thumbs up on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for an extra brand point, leave me a short review. Let's spread the messages far and wide. Bye for now.